Hello friends, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Passing Dimes. Before we get to the Todd Rogers Show, we have a special announcement. Today's episode is being sponsored by a new friend of the show, Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities, such as host read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. With Podcorn, there is no middleman. Podcasters of all sizes can browse and choose opportunities right on the platform, set your own rates, and collaborate with brands directly without any exclusivities. You never give up any of your rights to your podcast, and Podcorn is here to support you every step of the way and ensure you're protected and compensated for the work you do for brands. The Marketplace mission is to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and full control of how and when you monetize your podcast. So, if you run a podcast or are interested in sponsoring a podcast, click on the link in our show notes and sign up for Podcorn and start browsing your sponsorship opportunities today. Stay excellent, everybody, and now on to the Todd Rogers Show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. I'm glad we could work out the logistics here because this is going to be a good one. So today's guest has won 54 AVP championships. When partnered with Phil Dalhauser, they played 57 FIBs together. 44 of those events, they played for a medal, and they won 23 of those events. He's a two-time Olympian, winning gold in 2008, and he's currently the head coach at Cal Poly's Beach Women's Program. Please welcome to the show, Todd Rogers. Todd, thanks for doing that. Thanks so much, Josh. Good to be here. So, Todd, looking at your profile and when you started playing beach, I'm interested because when we had Heath on the show, I didn't realize this. There was kind of two camps in the U.S. with guys like Sinjin trying to push the FIVB and get that going. And then there was guys who felt like the AVP, which was the best domestic tour in the world, had the best players. So they didn't need to travel. So I'm curious with you being a California guy growing up, did you ever have goals of representing the U.S.? Or were your goals growing up as a young beach player to like win the Manhattan? Like where was the FIVB in your goals when you started playing beach? When I started playing beach, I was 14 years old in high school, ninth grade, and that was a long, long time ago, but let's see, 1989, I think, something like that, 88, uh, and so at that point in time, really, the FIVB had, had just been born, I think the first event was in 1987, and so I really know a lot about the FIVB, it wasn't an Olympic board, so me in high school growing up, it was all about the AVP, it was on prime ticket. It probably helped a lot that I grew up in Barbara and Karch is a native Tent barbarian. So uh, obviously everyone talked about Karch and his successes on the indoor as well as the beach side of things. Uh, for me as a, as a, you know, a high schooler, 14 to 18, it was much more about PAVP, AVP. And then in college, that started to shift a little bit. Uh, I never really truly thought I was going to be a pro player or something like that in high school, but that was my interest. Uh, and then come the Olympics, obviously, when it was announced that there was going to be the Olympics in 96 and in Atlanta boots, in the 90s, 92, 3, 4, when it was uh, announced, that's when I was like, oh, that would be really cool. And so then as I started playing more international or uh, ADP events, uh, I come 96, 97, that became eventually the goal. And it kind of is, it's, a, it's a route. Uh, that, and the route was get your triple A as an amateur, try and make it on the AVP tour, try and get to the top of the AVP tour. And eventually became, okay, try and go play international. So you can hopefully go play in the Olympics. Uh, for me, it kind of was a pretty good path uh, the whole time through. Nice. And, and again, looking at your, your results in your event list, the first FAVB you played in, I believe was a world championship. So you coming off the AVP tour, 
was the level that surprising or was the AVP really that strong that the best American teams were the best teams in the world? So you were able to make that jump because taking a ninth at Worlds in your first tournament, I just I don't believe that would happen in this era right now. I really doubt it would happen in this era. Uh, the AVP was definitely the strongest tour until somewhere in probably the... 98, 99, 2000, 2001, 2002 kind of range. Um, I remember having those conversations when I started to actually play on the FIVB tour a little bit more in 2001. Uh, and it, it just had more players that just played for a much longer period of time. And the way that this FIVB occurred at that point in time was you could only get three teams in the mid draw from one country. And then, of course, a full team to the qualifier. You can actually miss a team wild card if, uh, if you're fortunate enough to get a wild card. So you have a lot of good teams interested in playing uh, from Brazil and the U.S. And if, I think if they had a little bit more open at that time, you would have had a lot. You could have easily made the claim that the FIB Tour was the restore because you could have had 12 uh, American teams and 12 Brazilian teams and then eight teams from the other countries. Because realistically, the other countries only had one or two really, you know, pretty good teams. I mean, even in Canada, you had one or two teams that were kind of at that elite level at that point in time. Now it's completely changed. I mean, now every country has, not every country, but all the countries that play a lot of volleyball have eight good teams, if not eight good teams that are all fine. Uh, and the U.S. is just essentially another, another country that has, you know, eight good teams out there and there in the mix so it just it, it took off of that change I think the FIB had the right idea when they had originally the three, three per country because otherwise the Brazilians and Americans would have uh, would have pretty much dominated the draw you would have literally had Mark John uh, Los Ega brothers uh, Begard or not Begard uh, and Kaval uh, uh, from Norway you would have had eight other teams from some different countries Prosser's Honor from New Zealand but other than that, it would have just been Brazil, Brazil or best US two bets. Nice, nice. And just to fast forward a little bit. So when you were going through the tour, what made you want to partner with Phil? Because I think it's a little bit revisionist history in a sense that he's the most dominant player possibly ever. But at the time where you picked him up, his FIB results weren't that strong. And he was doing well on the AVP with Nick, but not dominant, right? So what did you see that he could build into and become the player that he has? You know, I, I put it as just pure, pure fortune. Uh, he he was playing with Nick, and because they were playing together, and then Nick had a girlfriend who lived in Santa Barbara, and so Nick moved out to be with his girlfriend at the time in Santa Barbara, uh, and they had just kind of qualified for uh, the AVP tour in 2004, and then going into the 2005 season, uh, Nick moves out to Santa Barbara, and, and Phil realizes, okay, I kind of I need to go out that way. And he says, well, I'll just go out with Nick and, and be with Nick. Dax was in Santa Barbara. I was in Santa Barbara. And we were playing with, I think, Sean Scott for me and Jeff Nygaard for him. And then there were a couple other just kind of, uh, you know, qualifier-level MVP teams, good teams to train against, though. And so I, I got to train against him a lot of times. And some of the stuff that he was doing on the court, athletically speaking, was just better than anyone else I'd Period. Like, end of discussion. Uh, for a guy that size, because there's obviously some smaller guys that are very athletic on the tour. You kind of have to be. For a guy that was nine, and he, I remember one play in particular, Sean and I were training 
my, I can't remember if it was myself or Sean, hit a ball off of Sill. Uh, I know he was uh, hit it out of the and sprayed it went off the court. And Phil just turned and burned. And I, I was, I started, you know, giving Sean a high five. He gets done deal. No one gets that ball. He gets it up and then he gets it back over. And it, I remember we won the point and I turned to Sean and I told John, I like, I think you're the only other person I know of that could have gotten that ball. And Sean was a you know, short blocker at 6'4", 6'5", extraordinarily strong and really, really fast on the sand. Uh, and Phil at 6'9", doing something that I felt as the main blockers only Sean could do that I knew on the tour. I was absolutely blown away. And so then the wheels started turning and uh, as the season went, Sean had a great season, but I started to recognize that Phil had a, a a level that could go beyond what uh, what I'd seen before out on, on tour of anyone throughout the world. Uh, and it's blown to hold the ends up getting there. Nice, nice. And I've heard you in other interviews say that you had some pretty serious discussions, including one with your wife, about like, do I want to do this? Because you had the foresight to say, like, I'm going to get served every single ball, right? So what went in through your decision knowing that, like, call it 90, 95% of the balls, like winning the game is going to come down to you. How did you come to terms with that decision? Was it just that Phil could do so many things that you were going to be, you know, have a shot at every tournament? Yeah, there was a couple pieces that were in play. Uh, one was I had to make a decision to I want to go full-time with Phil on the beach tour because I was coaching in Santa Barbara. The head coach was possibly going to, well, he was at Bumble Street and I'm going to retire in the next two to three years. I was a first assistant. I went there for school, right there, had been coaching there for six years. So it was kind of like I was at a divergent career path. Do I want to try and pursue my beach volleyball career or do I want to just get right into the coaching career? And that's a, it's a pretty good career path on the men's side. There aren't very many jobs, and I probably would have been pretty close to a shoe-in um, for that head coach position. Talked to some people. They said, you only get one shot to play. You're going to get so old that you can't eventually. And there were people that worked with John Wooden, some people that I had a lot of respect for. Uh, so I kind of made that decision going towards that route. And then the discussion with my wife was, how long do you think I can play when I'm getting served every single ball? Uh, and that really was the majority of the discussion. It really boiled down to, okay, well, I'm going to really have to ratchet up my physical uh, regiment, if you will, in the weight room. Um, my plyometric, my track workouts, all those kinds of things. I'm going to be in top shape because if, if we get 500 serves in a weekend, a chance that 480 of them are going to go to me and 20 of them are going to fill because he's just such an offensive juggernaut, even to this day, and he's put it before, you know? So that was a huge decision, and it really boiled down to can my body handle this? I felt it could. I was still in great shape. I was 33 at, at the time, and I wanted to be good at the Olympics, and I felt that. In the, in the long run, Phil gave me the, uh, the best opportunity to, one, get to the Olympics, and then depending on his development, uh, potentially win as well. And obviously, when, when the run happened and you guys are at your peak, like it, it just looked like if you guys played your A game, there wasn't another team that could beat you. So I'm wondering, what was going into keeping you at that level? Like, What were you guys doing in training, or what was your prep going into tournaments, knowing that if you guys played your best, you were really untouchable to, to most of the field, right? That's how we felt for a, a handful of years, particularly in that 2010 year uh, that we had a really pretty, pretty, uh, pretty good run for us. So, uh, yeah, we, we discussed it a lot, um, and we had a, a very distinct regiment. We had a couple of trainers. Uh, two, um, one guy, uh, Bob Leho, who was our guy 
said, it was in the weights all the time, super positive, pumped us up, great weights, uh, strength and conditioning coach. And then Sandy Combs did all of our track and plyometric work. Uh, and we kind of you know, talked to, to each of them and made sure that they were on the same page kind of thing. And yeah, it was, and it was pretty, pretty intense. The track workouts were, were brutal. Uh, I, I would say when we were doing the track workout, Phil probably threw up two out of three times uh, legitimately when we did it. Uh, and the third one that did throw up, he was just, he, he was at his peak and, or he went, we went a little bit slow. Uh, and the track workout was, I mean, we'd, we'd start off, it depends on what time of the year it was, but we'd get on the track and we would do five 400s uh, at 75 seconds uh, with two minutes break, which for that guy is that hard. Uh, but for a beach volleyball guy, it's, it's going to be a lot more difficult. And so from there, we would move into a, uh, a field circuit. And the field circuit included, you know, weighted jumps, so doing uh, burpees, uh, and touching the uh, the crossbar on the, of a football uh, field, uh, so you're jumping up, touching ten feet, count do a burpee, fifteen of those with twenty pound uh, weight vest on. We would do a little bit of lifting stuff. We do a lot of bouncing, uh, sprinting, fast, quick twitch stuff. Uh, about ten or twelve exercises. Do three circuits of that, and you're essentially just you keep doing. Uh, you go one, walk to the next one. Some of them are a little slower, like you know your ab ones are a little bit slower, allow you to catch your breath. Some of them are crushing you, like the burpees. Uh, then we go into a stadium, uh, and we used to do this at the Santa Barbara City College Stadium, and their stairs are brutal. They get bigger and more steep as you get to the top, and there's eight full bull steps that go from I'm going to say like the first step's maybe six centimeters, and the last step's probably twenty. Um, and so it just like steps are easy, but as you get up there, they start getting bigger and bigger. And we did a full, we did kind of a circuit there as well, three times with a single leg, and we do a sprint to the top, and we do jump every four steps, uh, rebound jumping on two legs, like you would with a volleyball jump. You try not to stop. Uh, most of the time, when we uh, was good. We would throw throat dunks uh, just because they were very, very difficult, hard to get your heart rate down. Uh, and if it was warm, it was really brutal. So those kinds of workouts really, really helped us. And, and a, a small story, jumping forward to the Olympics, you know, we lost our first game in the Olympics. And, and I remember still turning to me in our second one a couple of days later and being like, hey, we've had too many track workouts. We've vomited too many times. We put in too much time. Uh, not not to play our A game. And that kind of was that, yeah, you're right. Only we've been through too much pain and, and agony uh, not to put forth our best game and start playing the way we can. And sure enough, we did after that. Yeah, just to pull on that, is that kind of proof to an outsider that the Olympics are just that big of a scale? Because obviously you and Phil are, are winning world championships, winning AVPs, winning FIB events, and you get to the Olympics. Like, is the stage that much bigger and are the distractions that much more where Latvia is able to pull an, an upset against you guys just because of the how daunting the Olympics can be? I think so. There's a little bit. So part of it was difficult to fulfill it. Uh, you know, we, we all have, every athlete has the decision if you want to walk. Uh, in the opening ceremonies, uh, and it's not—you're not in a, a you know, nice van, or you're not cruising around, kind of thing. You're walking quite a ways because right? there's so many people involved. So you're on your feet, uh, then you go into the middle and you watch the pageantry and whatnot, if you so desire to. To decide to stay in the middle, and that's three hours of standing in 95 degree or 90 degree 
humidity in Beijing. And we played the next morning. Uh, and so, or the next day, I should say, uh, I walked through the uh, arena, or not the arena, the, the stadium, the bird's nest, and then myself, uh, Nicole Brandig, and uh, Jake Gibb all went out this little side door, say, giving us that option to do on the taxi, and then we headed back to the hotel. And so I was in bed by 10, 11 o'clock watching the pageantry on the TV, and Phil had stayed there, and I, I remember him in the game itself going, I feel like I can't jump. I, I feel like I literally cannot jump. Uh, and there were balls that I'm used to him stuffing or balls that I'm used to him hitting that he wasn't getting up and getting over the net like he normally would. And that, that came back to, to haunt us a little bit. Uh, do you think there was a lot of pressure? But I don't want to take any away from the Latvians. I mean, those guys, you know, they played hard, played super fantastic side out ball, line king was absolutely on fire, Alexander. I mean, he was he was, he was playing lights out. So I mean, their best ball. Did he play our A game? No, he didn't. Um, and I think, too, there was a little bit of, we, we never, I don't know if they scored 14 points against us before. Because so all of a sudden, now we're in a battle with them, scores home 10 or whatever it is. And I think there was a little bit of frustration, like, let's go, come on. This isn't a team that should be playing with us. Uh, and yet they were. So, yeah, I mean, when you're at the Olympics, there is that definitely extra added pressure that you're representing your country. The whole world is watching. Uh, you got to kind of put that out of, out of sight, out of mind, if you're going to be successful. At least that's most people do. Nice. And it's fair to say you guys didn't really press the panic button. It was just really get Phil rested, get back to playing your A-plus game. Like, there wasn't long meetings. Because looking ahead to your tournament, like, you guys obviously found your rhythm. And I think your semifinals were, like, 11 and 13. Like, you guys obviously found your your A-plus game and as you went through the draw. But after that first game, was there any other discussions other than a Phil obviously connecting to those those workouts you guys had? I mean, I was pressing the panic button after that game. <laughs> was, I was losing my mind. And we, our, our plan with our trainer was we would play and then at that very that evening we would go lift. And so I think we actually played at night. We played in the morning. We played at 7 o'clock or something like that. Played, got done, and then went and we lifted, I lifted uh, right away. Like, I went right in there. I won't hit the plates because I was pissed that we lost. Uh, and I was I was furious. Uh, I, was, I was ready to kill. Uh, so well, there was a little bit of panic. But, but the next day, you know, we had practice. We had a good practice. And then Phil said that. It's kind of like, you're right. Let's just play. Let's do what we do. And we're both pretty both pretty chill people. Uh, and even when we were, in, uh, I think it was the quarterfinals against uh, Mark Masiga, Jan, uh, I mean, they were up 6-1 in the third game, and Martin Lasiga was bomb jump spins down, down Phil's line, and, uh, and then he got hit, hit three in a row down Phil's line, uh, he hit one down the middle, and then he hit one on my ankle, uh, they were almost untouchable, and I, I, he literally got three clean aces, and maybe one at shank ball and then we'll, where we just basically gave him a free ball uh, to get to the point I remember taking a timeout just going well not really panicking just thinking was, I, I turned the fun so if he keeps serving like that we're, we're, we're toast there's nothing we can do about it let's hope that he stops serving that good <laughs> and then, then let's, let's just try and back, back and try and get this back to 13 all and, and go from there and sure enough we fortunately we we uh we didn't have a really great side out the next time. I think Phil passed the ball, but he at least passed it kind of in the middle of the court as they were rolling up. And he, 
put the ball in the very next point. Don hit, I remember distinctly, he hit a ball out. Great hit, sharp angle, and it was out by literally two centimeters. Just uh, barely out, and Martin Lasiga lost his mind on him. Called the time out, and I'm thinking to myself, going, score 6 3, you guys are in total control right now. You, you made your move, you just got to you know, stay steady. I remember trying to fill again at the timeout and going, we're going to be good on this one. They're freaking out at 6 3, we're going to be good. And sure enough, we, I think we caught him at 11, got the lead at uh, 14 13, and then 1 15 13. At now, just pulling on those timeouts you talked about, was it fair to say that you took more of the vocal role with the squad? And the reason I bring this up, when we had Josh Binstock on the show, he had a chance to watch you guys on TV, and obviously the camera gets in there during timeout. And one thing that we've stolen as Canadians with blocking was, Phil was talking about, do you want me to block him line? Am I going to jump angle here? And you just said, put your hands where you think the ball is going to cross the net. And I thought it was a, a very simple way to explain a complex detail of what you wanted Phil to do. So I'm wondering, was that a unique moment or was that something that happened at every time out where you're going to be the one kind of guiding the tactics of what the team was about to do? In 2006, I was very much the, the, the leader. Um, and my coaching style uh, is much more of asking questions but if, if, if your students don't have decided clue what the answer is, you have to give them the answer first and then follow back up later on in some other practices of what the, the uh, question is so that they should have hopefully remembered the answer, right? So in 2006, I was telling Phil, hey, this is what I want to do, and giving him a lot more instruction. In 2007, and we had this, you know, this, these discussions as we went on going, uh, I started to ask him a lot more right away. We go into a timeout. Hey, what, what are you thinking? And he would, you know, say whatever he's going to say, uh, and then I would kind of use it as a bit of a teaching. But goal was for me to be this uh, you know, leader the whole time. The goal was to get Phil on par, uh, and I would tell the people that I'm coaching, like, look, my my goal is to make it so that you don't need me anymore that you have every single bit of my knowledge and then your own knowledge, and so now you're smarter than me. That's the idea, right? For me, at least. Um, and so my goal with Phil is the same thing, to, to get him up to speed. In 2007, I would, say that I would ask him every time, hey, what do you want to do here? And his responses were almost always pretty much spot on in terms of, hey, I think this is what he's, he's doing this. Is what I want. I want to do against him, and then you can kind of do this or this, whatever you see out there. And oh, okay, that sounds sounds good. I would chip in a little bit here, but came much more give take. And, and for me, what I saw was Phil go from I'm in learning mode, and I'm just trying to absorb it all and so much. And Todd's just spitting all this stuff at me. Um, it's a little bit of a overload, but I'm going to take as much of it in as I can to, okay, the game has slowed down so much because he's taken so much information in and that experience a little bit faster because he's gotten all that information and now he's on a much more equal footing. And at the time there in 2008, I really did feel that I probably had a little more knowledge just because I'm older and, and, and played more years. But we were on we were on board with each other. And whenever, 99% of the time when I would say, hey, what are you thinking? And what he said, I was in 99% agreement. So that's kind of how it morphed to it. Now, there are times where they're like, he was frustrated or I was frustrated in terms of what was going on out there. That'd be like, what, what, what am I doing wrong here? That kind of stuff. But that was much more of a give and take back and forth where Phil could give me advice or I could give him advice. Uh, so I've 
Oh, like 2008 on, it was much more of a equal footing partnership rather than a uh, you know master student type of uh, role. Nice. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all the details you have already. So. One thing I'm always interested in, I think The Last Dance did a good job about this, is showing that Michael Jordan, to get through those seasons and kind of the dog days, he would make up these stories and go at certain guys. I was wondering, uh, after listening to Phil on Coach Your Brains Out, he mentioned he always got up for certain Brazilians and he liked to play those games. What For you, going through all these matches and all these tournaments, was it just the goal of winning that got you focused and dialed in every time? Or was there were you almost like Michael Jordan as well, telling yourself little stories or playing against certain players that got you fired up? Because to go on that run you guys did, that's a lot of matches and a lot of situations to go through. So how did you fire up every time you had to play? A little bit of the jordan as part of, as far as telling myself some stories. I mean, there were just guys that, it's, uh, and it's like I said to you uh, before we, we actually were on the air, uh, I came along with almost everyone on tour. I'm a pretty easygoing guy. I like to think and try to see the big picture. There are some guys that are just jerks on the court. Uh, they're not bad guys. They're just jerks on the court. Uh, or they have a whatever, something about them that they do that just rubs me the wrong way. So I'll absolutely use that. The biggest thing for me, though, isn't winning. It's I just really hate to lose. I do not like losing. And so when we're in a game and if we're losing, that's eating at me and it's firing me up and it's getting me more and more motivated. Uh, and so if down 12 nine at the turn I'm, I'm 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 pissed like i'm ready to and for me a pissed doesn't mean i'm i'm red rage being red gonna hit every ball as hard as i can it's i'm fully i am engaged my mind is 100 percent there i do not want to lose i'm probably in a worse situation back then when i was up 12 nine because now i'm in a position we've established a lead now we just got to keep that lead as I got older, I got a little bit better at, at retaining those leads and, and keeping the, the nose to the grindstone kind of terminology. Uh, but for me, I think the number one thing, I, I don't like to lose. I just I can't stand losing. And so every time I'm down, I find something, some kind of energy to, to push forward and, and get through. And that 2010 year, everything fell our way, too. I really do believe that, almost everything, at least, uh, when, we, when we won a lot of events. We won a lot of events, 15, 13, had a, a crazy comebacks. Uh, so there was a lot of fortunate stuff there. But number one thing, far and away, I still like to lose. So for you, somebody who lived this, like there's obviously teams like, uh, I don't know, USA Basketball or Duke Basketball or, you know, Team Canada Hockey, where there's certain teams where either you're going to get everybody's best game because they're going to fire up for you and they have nothing to lose. Or there's almost that sense where they, they know they don't belong and there's going to be a breaking point where they give in. So... With you being somebody who lived through that, which one was more true for you guys, that everybody was going to fire up and give you their best game because they're playing with house money? Or was there a sense that when you did get like that 12-9 that switch or that 13-8, the teams were about to fold up? I'd actually say both. Uh, no matter what we knew, the teams were going to just come out and just fire away. If, if you're talking about, let's say, we're the number one seed in the tournament, and the number 32 seed was actually the number 40 Qualifier seed. Well, they're just going to come out. They're going to rip jump serves. They're going to hit every ball. They're just going to go after lines. And you kind of know that going in. So you go, okay, we're going to get their best game, or at least their, their best effort right off the bat. But if you can shut that down from the get-go, or at least fairly quickly right away, I found that most teams just gave up. They just crumbled. They're like, oh, well, we're supposed to lose, so no big deal. Like, we'll, we'll get ready for the next match. Like, that, that type of mindset. I mean, once you get to a top 
know, top 10 team, but isn't really the mindset anymore. They know that if they play their best and maybe at you know, Sean's peak, we would have to play a little bit less than our best. But there were definitely teams out there that if they played their, you know, their A game and we played our A minus game, we're probably going to lose because they're right there with us. Uh, so I, it kind of depended on where they were at as far as where the, their seed or their ranking was. So a little, bit of, a little bit of both, I'd say, more than just one of those. Nice, nice. And looking at what you were very gifted at, obviously your side-out game and your vision and your approach, and if anybody wants to learn more about that, they can check out uh, your interview on Coach Your Brains Out. But to build on that, I was wondering, was there anything that ever gave you trouble, like either a really active defender or were there certain blockers like Ricardo style where he could front and do several different reaches out of it? Or maybe if you had to play against a guy like Mole who's just so active and big right now, like was there anything that could disrupt your vision? Or if you get the look you want and gather the information, is that like the best skill youth athletes can do? Because it's really unstoppable if you collect the right information? Uh, I do think it's the best skill that a, uh, a youth athlete that is uh, above and beyond, say, intermediate, like an advanced youth athlete, uh, someone that knows skills already, because trying to teach someone vision that's say, 14 years old, that's still kind of wrapping their brain around hit, shoot, ball contact, feet the ball, all those kinds of things. I mean, yes, there's some exceptions to that rule, uh, but probably more pushing closer towards, you know, an elite junior or collegiate player to be able to see those things. As far as uh, individuals that were that always played me really well, there were two guys that I, I honestly, only two guys that I truly feared as blockers. Um, and that, that was Ricardo, you named one of them. Um, and uh, and Kevin Wong actually, those two guys were and they both had similar blocking styles. Or could Kevin actually had multiple different blocking styles? Uh, but the blocking style of front the hitter and then be so freaking long that you can reach up and then actually reach to the side one way or the other. Uh, that was difficult because I'm reading you to your. But if I see you going straight up here, and then I have to at some point in time get my eye back on the ball and I see you going straight up, then you have the reach and the ability to really go far out wide on me and take away some of my little chop shots because I was someone that's going underneath the elbows a lot more than I'm going high hands. Uh, that was, uh, that was the hardest people to work with. I had to be, I had to constantly tell myself, okay, can't just go one way or the other. Got to go high and hard. Because if they're reaching, then high and hard's a great hit because it's going off their elbows or their forearms or something like that. It's a kill 90% of the time. Uh, but if you're trying to chop inside or sharp angle uh, or, excuse me, sharp line down the line and they're reaching one way or the other, they're going to get you. Uh, so that was those two guys were really tough. You know who would have been really, really tough? Uh, but I didn't play against him enough. Actually, it was I got Mike Whitmarsh, silver medalist in 96. Because his blocking style was similar as well. He would jump super high and then reach one way or the other. But I had studied his style, and he never or rarely ever just went straight up and over. And so I would just bomb high middle against him and get tool after tool after tool. Um, he, he figured it out his last year and stuffed the snot out of me. But <laughs> um, that guy was a great guy. So I mean, it, it, not that I liked losing, but uh, he was a good man. So, yeah, those two guys were just... And they were just smart, just some of the smartest blockers I've ever played against. I'm um, in Ricardo uh, and Kevin Long. 
Now, obviously, with the the value and the importance of the blocker in in the men's game, is there anything a defender could do? Like you see, the juke moves are really popular right now. But were you just confident that you could blow up a defender, or was there anything that they could do late that would disrupt like a vision player? You know, I mean, you could. I think the, the, the two that probably did the best were Don Hyden and Casey Jennings um, as far as juking. I mean, Hyden was probably the number one guy that did a really good job of juking and really trying to show me something that he and Sean had clearly worked out. So Sean would show me something, John would show me something that was complementary to each other and a, and a defensive move as a blocker defender. Uh, and then they would, uh, you know, when I'm going up, they would do something that was different enough that it would just take me a little bit off. Uh, and they did enough of it too where they constantly were messed up. They never just showed me the same thing over and over again. It was a constant... Uh, mixed mosh, they'd show me something twice and then something you know, different and i go back to that and i go to something totally different twice and they kept moving it around so that I was constantly in a mess match with them uh, and they probably, those two guys John and Sean as a pair and then Casey as a defender would make some interesting moves, you know, if you say the dive move and you're showing uh, I'm on the line block, I'm going to dive into your angle and the defender's already in the angle when I looked, I could see the lean uh, of the blocker, uh, and so uh, when I see that lean, uh, I would be like, okay. You're you're diving in my angle. I can either cut this ball because the reality is is that the defender's either going to run. It's probably going to be running to the line late. So I see what you're showing me. You're going in. You're digging an angle, but I see you leaning this way. So I know you're going to go here. You've already committed to going down, and you're leaning that way. So you really can't go back the other way without stopping all your momentum. And then you're too late because I'm already getting up there and hitting the ball. Uh, that I was able to see that uh, John did some some much more interesting things where he would just stay there. He would move. He just almost sit in a cut shot. I would cut it over Shamanti, thinking I did this great shot. Although I saw what they were going to do, and then John just got an easy free ball on his lap. Um, <laughs> Like stuff, stuff like that. They were really creative uh, in those areas. Um, I mean, I, I, Phil has told me that uh, the Mole and Sorum have done some really unique blocking and defensive stuff. Uh, I didn't get to play against them. I would have loved to. I've seen some of it. Um, some of it where maybe uh, he is leaned one way, but then he's jerking his hands back the other way. Uh, I mean, that's pretty special, and there's all these maybe a handful of people uh, that could do that in the world that are, you know, that are that athletic and can jump that high and have that good of a timing and strong enough hands. I mean, there's so many pieces that have to be a part of that. And I think that I've, I've got no doubt that that definitely get me pretty good. I, I think that blockers and defenders are just doing a lot more radical blocking. It's not as much as one, two, three, four blocks. It's, uh, I'm going to show you a two, but then I'm going to reach back into the, into the line. Um, you, you saw me and you thought I was going to dive in the angle. Um, so, and I think it's, it's what's the advantage was to the offense again. Now it's starting to come back and it'll go back and forth. People will be real creative. That's a fun part of the game. Nice, nice. And, and just to jump ahead in your career, when you started picking up Doherty, Brunner, uh, Stafford, and you played a little bit with Paige, was that somebody at USA Volleyball having like the foresight to know that you were going to break up with Phil and that he could really use you as a leader to train the next bigs? Or was that you wanting to give back to the sport and you knew you weren't finished and you were just going to take on another blocker and keep going? Like, Which one kind of led to you giving the next wave of USA Blockers? USA Volleyball, honestly, I had nothing to do with it. Um, I was a board member for eight years, just actually finished my term June 30th. Um, but uh, they, 
they weren't uh, telling anyone who to play with or who not to play with. Uh, I'm sure if someone asked for advice, sure, someone's going to, you know, someone knowledgeable is going to give them some advice. For me, I was still playing at a pretty level. Uh, and Phil and I decided to you know, go our own ways. Um, and that was actually, I mean, I, our last event was in Santa Barbara, actually. Phil and I was in 2012. And we took a fifth, lost to Brad John, if I recall correctly. And uh, I remember walking up to him, and, and I, I was I was really good. I was not as good, in my opinion, as Rosie at that point in time or uh, Nick. And there were a couple of defenders that were, you know, had edged, in my opinion, past me, and I, I was declining physically. And I, I knew that. Uh, and so I remember walking up to him and just stuck out my hand. We just fought. He was pissed. Uh, and he kind of looked at me and shook my hand. I just said, hey, man, I think it's time. I think it's time that you, you move on. And I just wanted to say thank you for some freaking unbelievable years. But I think you'd be better served with a better partner. Physically do it. I'm, I'm slowing down. And, uh, and I was still good. Don't get me wrong. But I wasn't the guy that could take Bill to the next level or, you know, the Olympics. Couldn't we have maybe if I had maybe, but... He would not have won a gold medal in 2016. He would have had a shot. So playing with Ben Doherty and Theo, uh, that was more I wanted to do the best I could. But uh, yes, I, I enjoy, I really do enjoy working with those kind of guys that are big, athletic, and being pretty gnarly, effective bloggers. Uh, so I, I found personal joy in that. So working with Ryan, um, who's, who's, who's an awesome, awesome guy, I uh, really have a lot of respect for him and what he has done in his own life, in his own career, going from baseball to volleyball. It was a blast just getting him up to speed. Then working with Theo, who I actually coached ESP uh, indoors. Uh, so I had a good rapport with him already. Uh, and then working with Stafford, um, that was a blast. I, you know, I had the idea with Rob Page was the same thing. Um, it didn't work out uh, the way in any way, shape, or form like I thought it would. Uh, but that's, that is what it is. Maybe there was just too much of an age gap, a generational gap. We did not, uh, we did not gel. Uh, unfortunately, but he had a world of talent. Uh, but for whatever reason, we didn't, we didn't gel like himself. Unfortunately, I enjoyed working with those bigs, and I helped Jesse Volleyball create some good bigs. And great, I enjoyed it too. Now, obviously, it makes a lot of sense to anyone you're going to tell this idea to put a vet with a younger player. But for you who lived through it, what are some actual experiences? Like, were you doing the same thing with Phil and asking them questions and coaching them up and giving them an answer? But were you also showing them how to train, how to travel? Like, what were some real examples you can give other than, you know, somebody at the head of a federation saying, oh, we should we should keep this vet around because of their experience. What are some real examples of experience that you passed on to these guys? Uh, well, with Phil, uh, we're going to, I just essentially told him, hey, this is what we're, we're going to do. I'd like you to buy in. I can't force you to, um, but I'd like you to buy in. I want to I wanna go down to the beach bring, you know, as soon as you get back from visiting family over Christmas break, uh, New Year's. I go down three times a week, and we're not going to do a lot of physical, gnarly activity on the beach, but I just want to go over every single player on tour and I want to go over your skill sets and, and just kind of fine tune he's pretty a, a very good volleyball player at that point in time. it wasn't like he was uh, mincemeat or something like that so fine tuning his passing his, his even though he's probably arguably the best setter one of the best setters of all time you know, there were certain things he needed to work on squaring up a little bit more so that I was I could be a better hitter because I needed him to square up so I could see where I needed to be as a hitter uh, to get to my point of preparation and then go uh, those little things, going over each 
what does uh, Karch like to do? What is what are his tendencies? What is he a good passer to his right or to his left? Is he and obviously Karch is pretty much really good at everything out <laughs> the stratosphere. But he was older then as well, so he had slowed down. He was doing some, some different things at that point in time, and so trying to go over that kind of in my own way, give him kind of my my black book of skill sets that everyone has, where they're good and where they're weak, uh, and trying to do the same thing with all the uh, the, the guys. And that was the on-court stuff. I did each, every guy, if they weren't already savvy with travel, I told Phil, I told Theo, I told Ryan, is what you want to do, pick an airline. Doesn't matter which one you want to go, probably whichever one is, flies best out of the area you are in bar at the time, that was United. Uh, and so Phil chose United as well. He's like, well, you got United. I'll, I'll just choose United. It makes sense. They fly to more spots out of Santa Barbara than anywhere else. I said, you want to just fly that airline as much as you possibly can because you're going to want to get upgrades to travel internationally. You're going to want to get to 1K so you can board first, stow your bags, get comfortable. Whatever it is that you, you need to do to, to travel better, especially especially with those bigs. They're six nine. Doherty's seven foot plus. Doe's six seven. Stafford six eight. Robbie Page is seven foot. You know, for me, I'm fine. Man, I'm already good. I want to get to 100k as fast as I could and get all those free upgrades. i uh, be in business for class because I can't even imagine sitting in a coach class with. I saw Ryan in a coach class and I felt absolutely horrible. Um, his, his knees were up by his face, basically. <laughs> um, so I tried to give him those little things. You know, bringing uh, simple things people just don't think about unless you travel a lot. Like put in the bottom of your backpack one extra change of clothes. Probably no one use it all year long. That one time that they lose your bags for a day or two, you're going to be really happy when you get there and you have an extra pair of clothes you have to change and do that are clean, but you don't have to wear the same one for eternity. Or go out and buy a bunch of clothes. So just little things like that. I'm trying to help them out and real world stuff outside just the volleyball stuff awesome awesome and once again just to skip ahead with all you've done in your career when you started coaching how did you find the transition because i think sports fans will recognize it like wayne gretzky wasn't the best coach you know magic johnson wasn't the best coach so with you being a top tier player in your own sport how were you able to transition to a coach was it just your playing style of how you thought about the game or how did you make that transition where it looks like in other sports high level athletes don't always become the best teachers I tend to agree. High-level athletes, a lot of times, are terrible coaches. Uh, they're just they're really good athletes, and uh, the way that I've seen I've seen some. Well, man, I don't know how it is in other sports, but I have seen some that literally just come on, you guys, just do it this way. Go out and do it, and now everyone's looking at me like I can't do that. I don't have the <laughs> physical tools to go up and hit the shot that you just hit. Uh, you're you're old, and you still can do it. That kind of stuff. So. Uh, for me, I always consider myself a coach. Uh, even when when I got in high school and I went into college, I was immediately, even though I was in college, I was playing UCSB, I was coaching a boys' club team. Uh, just a local, you know, 16s club team. And I did that all throughout uh, through college. And then I got on the pro tour, and the, uh, the club director at the time, or the owner of the gym that was kind of in charge of the club, came to me and said, hey, uh, you know, you've been coaching. Do you mind becoming the club director? And I said, sure. Uh, so I became a club director for the Santa Barbara Boys Club. You know, tried built it up from 20 kids to 80 kids over a couple of years. Uh, at the same time, I was coaching a local middle school as well as a local high school. 
Uh, then I took over UC, or not took over, but I became a assistant coach at UC Santa Barbara for the men's volleyball team from 99 to 2005. Uh, and then when I decided to play still, essentially I got uh, some very, really, very good advice, like I said previously, that, hey, you know, you've put in your time coaching. It's clear you've coached here six years, you've, you've built a club, you did all these other things. You know, you, you're only going to have the shot for a short period of time now at your age, and you might want to take a full practice afterwards. You will, essentially, they said you will look back and regret that you didn't go for it. Uh, so I stopped coaching at that point in time, uh, like officially, and just started focusing on Phil. So I retired at UCSB in December of 2005. That being said, I've got a, at the time I had a six and a four year old. They all played, they played soccer, basketball, baseball, etc. So guess who started being coaching for them? Me. Uh, and I loved it uh, because it got, gave me my coaching aspects. And also I got to spend extra time, quality time with my kids, which was awesome. Uh, so I look back at those fondly. And then I was, I was coaching Phil at the same time in 2006. So I really never, I was considering myself a coach before I even considered myself a, a pro athlete. Because back in college, I was coaching from the get-go. Nice. And with your ability to ask questions or not say you have to do it this way, like, is it fair to say Cal Poly, like a right-handed right side doesn't have to do your approach? Like, how are you finding the balance of, I had a ton of success with this, but it might not work for you? Like, are you doing a lot of trial and error practice? Are you doing the same approach for asking them a lot of questions? Like, where is the balance of, you've been at the highest level of our sport and had success, so you need to be able to hit like this shot versus what they can do physically, mentally, emotionally, all that stuff that comes into their game, right? I, I, you, I mean, you, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head there, is, uh, and I tell them, this is what worked really well for me. I was not good. You, 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 push, you give me a push set or a shoot set to the pin on the right side, and I'm blind as a bat. And believe me, I tried it. Uh, you know, I, I worked on an entire offseason on really trying to hone that down back in, gosh, I can't remember, back in the early 2000s, 2003, 2004, something like that. And I just, I could not see a thing. I really, really struggled for whatever reason. I don't know if that's my dominant eye or I, I couldn't even give you a, an answer. I just did not work for me. So I found that I was much better off with a higher straight up and down set. Gave me plenty of time to get my feet there, max jump, use my vision. So I give all of those pieces to my players and say, look, this can work for you. But if you, you may, this may not work for you. And more than anything, what I want to give them is, and I tell them this, I want to give you, you got, you got a toolbox. I want to give you as many tools as you can. And maybe the straight up and down set against a certain block defensive team doesn't work very well. But the push to the pin, path to the middle, push to the pin, maybe for whatever reason that blocker just struggles uh, when, they have, when you're moving them a little bit and you're picking the ball off as it's going from left to right. Uh, and you know, going around. And so the the game is there's a lot more movement now offensively, and the and the game in general, and definitely in college, uh, especially college women. There's all you know, there's push sets, there's quick sets, there's baby twos, there's back sets. There's, I mean, you look at the McNamara twins. I mean, they're doing they're practically running an offense almost, especially with the right lefty combo. Uh, so that kind of stuff is much more prevalent, and I want. The gals that I'm coaching at Cal Poly to have all of those aspects and get good and understand what they can do in those different situations because the the push set to the pin is going to allow you to maybe chop it back into that that angle a little bit harder with a little more pace but a straight up and down set in the middle of the court 
is probably not going to give you that same kind of angle and you're not going to be able to hit it as hard. You can still hit a good sharp angle, but it's going to be more of a, a, a chop shot, like a downward angle shot, not a hard hit. And just understanding those little pieces of what you're capable of doing, what you should be looking for, what you should be attacking uh, based on what their defensive movement uh, is those are kind of more the things. And, and for example, Tia Mirich, who's from Canada, has uh, you know been on my one team for since she got to, to Cal Poly. And she learned and, and worked on hitting the straight up and down ball. Uh, but her first year, she struggled a little bit with it and liked it more of a lobby set to the pin. Not really a shoot set, but a much a lobby set that she could kind of go in and pick it off and come in at a little bit more of an angle instead of straight in at the net from the middle or close to the middle of the court. And she was much more successful when we talked about it. And I was like, this, that's great. Uh, you, this is where we're successful now. Let's get you good at the straight up and down set. So that now you have options that if this isn't working, you go to option B. And B isn't working, you still can go to option C. And then maybe it's, we go A, then B, then C, then back to B, then back to C, then back to A. And now you're just confusing the other side. They're, they're running, you know, like, chicks with their heads cut off. I've never been wedded to the way or the highway uh, even to the point and it's ridiculous of course where I but when I first started coaching them and we weren't nearly as good you know, I'd say look I'm going to try and teach you the, what I feel is the is probably the best way pass that definitely works for me uh, and that I, that I feel is a really good you know efficient technical movements in the sand but I'll tell you what if you can pass with one finger and your diamond balls every time the podcast you pass with diamonds with one finger why would I keep that the dumbest thing to possibly do. You're already, you know your technique is terrible. Who cares? You're getting done. I'll give you a, I know I'm being long-winded here, but I'm going to give you a good example of that. Watch Phil Jump Serve. Have you ever watched Phil Jump Serve before? Yeah, he's goofy-footed. Exactly. And uh, the first couple times we started working with him, or I started working with him, I asked, do you know you're goofy when you jump serve? And he looks at me and goes, should I change it? And I'm like, yeah, no. <laughs> uh, you're, you're you're a pretty damn good jump server, and I'm pretty sure you're going to be the best jump server in the world. So, uh, no, I, I would say unless I can tell this, and I tell all my athletes that I coach this, if it's going to create an issue with your shoulder or your back because you're putting an unnatural torque on something that eventually is going to get of, then yes, I think you should change it. Your goofy foot is kind of like Viola or Karches, where your left foot's still in front of your right foot. And so you're still kind of open to that ball. Your cross body and middle to middle swing's really strong. Your you know, middle to left side player's line over there, your outside shoulder swing or display swing is going to be a little bit weaker. That was definitely his weaker serve. You really had to work on it. But why change something that's already one up is not the best thing in the world? as long as there's not an injury potential to it. Uh, and he said, oh, okay. Sure enough, he ends up being my team for a lot of years, the best jump server in the world. Nice, nice. And just a question about your own coaching. Was there anything you struggled with to kind of change with the game? And the reason I asked that is, Mark Heath mentioned there was an era in like the 90s of beach volleyball where if you didn't have four guys, you didn't play. Like guys just wanted to play and they weren't really into training or doing drills or things like that where now there's an era of beach volleyball is a little bit more organized and there's drills and certain things you want to focus on and giving the athletes autonomy and all that stuff so with your own playing career were you a guy who grew up going to the beach with four guys and you would just play a lot or were you already doing drills as a player and that made you into a coach or did you have to kind of get with the shift of where the game is going 
you know, I never even thought about it in my own head as far as I was concerned, but it, I definitely shifted and it was not difficult at all. It just kind of was. Uh, and if you look historically, I mean, if you look at some of the quote unquote, you know, legends back in the day, like a Ron Von Hagen or a Jim Mangus or like back in the day, the, the top U.S. guys, they, they would say, oh, we just go down to the beach. We play all day long. That's how we're in good shape. It's what we do. It's how we got good. It, it works. It's like, okay. But the game has evolved since then. Um, it's not a war of attrition. It's literally back then uh, those guys played in tournaments. Uh, I mean, literally all day long. And they had to jump and they weren't blocking over the net. The game morphed a little bit where we started to have blockers over the net. It's still when I was a kid, for sure. When I was in high school and college, I don't recall doing any drill. Obviously, indoors we did drills. But for beach, no, it was go down there, a bunch of guys shoot it. I cool. We had. 40 guys that would go down, we'd take two or three courts at East Beach, we would just literally play all day long. I'd run into the ocean, play all day long. It wasn't until I got into really the pro ranks in Pax and I in 97, and even then it wasn't really drills so much. It was more, hey, uh, you know, let's, let's do a few little warm-up type stuff, ball work type stuff to warm it up. And then we do some form of a side out drill where whatever, whatever everyone would serve ten balls. Yeah, you know, each team would serve. Each guy would get ten balls. Each team twenty, and then we'd go into a match. That was pretty much how it was in the late nineties, even. Uh, and then Karch actually introduced me to a couple of different drills, still kind of more playing focused drills rather than breaking the down drills. Uh, and then come the two thousands, I felt like more and more people started really breaking it down and. Maybe the first hour would just be a triangle passing and some triangle setting. And, hey, I want to work on some some transition running down the line. So could you guys just, you know, certain you, you make it kind of a line shot. I'm going to make a move. I'm going to dig that, you know, hit the stand. And then I want to transition and we play it out from there. Uh, we'll do 10 of those in a row. So now we're starting to break the game down a little bit more. And it was more just still with four people a lot. Uh, but it was more starting to break it down. And then I was probably 2005 to 2008, I think, is when uh, you got a lot more video involved. Coaches got involved. And, of course, once you get video and coaches involved, you're starting to really break the game down. And so then it was, hey, Joe and John, we're going to go down and meet, and we're going to work on uh, your passing. You're going to take an hour of passing reps working short, deep, short, deep, short, deep, or something like that. Uh, and that's when things really change, which, if you think about it, they saw stats. Coaches come in, our video comes in, they want to break your game down, they want to break your opponent's game down, well now you have to sit down and actually go over things that the other teams are going to try and do against you. That's when the shift changed, is when everyone started to get coaches. In my opinion, I don't know if anyone else showed that, but that's when I saw the shift change to more dribble-oriented and less play-oriented. Nice, nice. Well, thank you for all the stories you shared and all the information you did. I'm just looking at the clock. We've taken a lot of your time, but as somebody who's accomplished everything there is in our sport and obviously doing well in the coaching world as well, I, I imagine there's a funny story that's popped up where volleyball, it doesn't matter what level you're playing at, something funny is going to happen along the way. I was wondering if you could tell us a story to give us a laugh before we let you go. Sure, actually, uh, I, since uh, since you guys are our, our great North uh, neighbors uh, up there in Canada, I will share a story about uh, John and Mark, uh, Childs and Heath. Uh, back in, uh, probably wrong year, but uh, let's just say 2002, uh, I'm playing with Sean Scott, and we are in 
Salvador de Bahia in Brazil, and I probably butchered that as well, but it is one of the hottest tournaments I've ever played at. Uh, definitely top three of all time. And it's super, super humid, and we're on our second match of the day. And so it felt like we're on our 10th match of the day. And I felt terrible. Uh, and they're serving Sean Scott every ball. And so they're winning. They're kind of just 3-2 you know, up. Six four up, nine six up. So they're in control. We're we're there, but they're kind of in control. It doesn't look very good for us. Um, and uh, we're we're we keep going. You know, all of a sudden, I feel kind of my stomach start to rumble. It's giving me a little problems, a little bit more problems, and I'm starting to struggle. But they can't tell because they're focused on Sean. We're in service to you. Uh, I'm on the right side. Sean's on the left. And I literally just out of nowhere, they're about to, to blow the whistle, just vomit, projectile vomit all <laughs> over the place. Um, and I mean, there's a massive puddle in front of me, and probably three or four times, uh, I don't know if it's something I ate or what exactly it was, but there's literally a puddle. Everyone kind of stops around the court. You know, John and Mark are like, holy crap. Like, what? John's going, are you, you okay? Like, what's going on here? And I sit down and, and kind of try and collect myself and my head's spinning. And I'm, in hindsight, I'm sure it had something to do with the intense heat and humidity. Uh, but it ended up being a blessing in disguise because they came out, they <laughs> Brazilian guys, I felt terrible for them. That guy's helping out. They're literally shoveling sand from the vomit into buckets and running it off the court. I don't know where they were tossing it. I don't want to know. And they got to you know, make sure all of it's up. You, know, you never know if it's easy and whatnot. Uh, so by the time we get out there, we had probably a five to ten minute, but it essentially amounts to a medical break. Con and Mark, uh, like probably most teams do, look at Look at themselves and go, dude, we're going to go after Todd. He's dying right now. We didn't even know it. <laughs> and so, sure enough, they served me unbeknownst to them. After I had thrown it up and had two or three minutes just in the shade chilling, I felt really good. <laughs> Sean had been getting served every ball, so he's exhausted. So, they served me, and I'm signing out at will. We end up coming back and, and winning that game. And uh, I still remember this day afterwards, later on probably having a beer somewhere that that same tournament. Uh, John and Mark are like, why the hell did we start serving you? I'm like, well, of course you're going to serve me. Like, you someone projectile vomits all over the court. You're thinking they're dying. Uh, so, yeah, it was kind of a funny story. And they probably have purposely forgotten that, but hopefully they hear and can remember, and then they'll, they'll send me some texts and we'll laugh about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't wait for Heath to hear that one because I'm sure I'm going to get a text too because he'll have all the details <laughs> too, so... Awesome, Todd. Thank you. I, I learned so much. Thank you for taking the time and for giving us that one. I, I'm sure our Canadian fans are lighting up right now because that's, that's a good one. So thanks for sharing all that you did and for taking the time. Absolutely. Great being on. And I uh, hope it uh, all goes well with everything going on up there and everything going on down here. Hopefully we'll, we'll be in a better place uh, next summer. Sounds good. Thanks again. Take care.